Matthew chapter 1. This is the first time in about 18 months that I've not said, turn in your, in your Bibles to the book of Romans. We're turning to Matthew for a few different reasons. We're turning to Matthew, and it's fitting, of course, because this is Advent season, and as we begin a gospel, we will focus on and consider a birth narrative of Jesus Christ. Birth narratives are fitting at this time of year because the church down through the ages has found it to be a healthy, a beneficial, and a stirring practice to wonder again at God with us. The fact that God saw fit to come into our midst, to be born, to take on human flesh, to humble himself in such a way is not something to be yawned over. It's something to be, if you can, this is kind of preachery, but something to be fawned over, if that makes, you see. And I believe that Matthew, if done rightly, if seen rightly, Matthew's going to help us to consider what it would have been like to hear again for the first time that a king has been born, that God has come into the world to set right things that have been wrong and to bring hope into a place that was up to this point hopeless. After we consider this birth narrative concerning Matthew, we're actually just going to continue on with the rest of the book, and we're going to find over the next year plus together that Matthew has a particular message for us. He has a message concerning the king, a king over all things, that Jesus has come to sacrifice himself, but through his humility to come out on the other side as the ruling sovereign of the world. And not only ruling sovereign of the world, but ruling sovereign over people. And then more, and perhaps Matthew's bent as well, is that he is to be the ruling sovereign over not just God's people in Israel, but all nations. And I am so excited to see this theme of king and kingdom developed over the course of time in the months to come. Even the, the least astute Bible students probably have an accounting of Matthew somewhere or in their hearts or in their brains. If I said to you, give me some of the Matthew greatest hits, you might be able to say, I, I know what they are. It is Matthew who focuses well and nearly completely on the wise men coming to offer gifts to this king, fitting his narrative. This is the announcement of a king coming into the world. It is Matthew who takes great care to record the teachings of Jesus, his most lengthy and impactful sermon on the mount. It is in the Sermon on the Mount that you hear and would recall most of the kind of messages that the world, a watching world, would know concerning Jesus. It is Matthew that takes care and I think takes delight in recording for us the lively, exciting, surprising teaching of Jesus. We find in the pages of Matthew that Jesus was a teacher who was didactic, who of course knew the Old Testament, who understood and was grounded in the history of God's people, but was also surprising in very fun ways. Jesus was the kind of teacher who in the midst of teaching maybe would pause in a little gleam would go in his eye, and then he would just pull out a fish, say actually, and slam it down on the table. 
or he would point to things that people knew. And so it is in Matthew that we find parable after parable after parable, a kind of focused teaching that would have been given to those who could hear but would not be hearing. Matthew is describing a king who has come to a people who are going to reject him and don't quite get it. It is Matthew who describes Jesus marching toward and interacting with the ruling powers of his day and age, not only religious powers, but the cultural around him. It is Matthew who gives us pictures and accounts of not only the end of the temple and the coming judgment, but in many ways, Matthew gives us a, an astounding kind of what is he talking about picture of the end of all things. It's Matthew where Jesus describes the abomination of desolation and mountains throwing themselves on top of people and running from dread. Matthew gives clear pictures of the mission that Jesus' disciples are to have in the world, the thing that we carry with us following his resurrection. It is Matthew where we get a clear marching orders and the mission statement of the church. If you ask me, what's the mission statement of our, of our church? What do we do? I think the first and the best place is to turn to Matthew 28 and say, this is what has been given to us to do. We have a great commission to go into the world, to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to go into all of the world. This is going to be a theme of this book. And so it is fitting to study Matthew at this time of year, not only because we just finished Romans and we need a book to study, <laughs> which, if we're fair, we just finished Romans and we need a book to study. But more than that, it's fitting because we will begin with a birth narrative that will focus our hearts and our minds over the next number of weeks. It's fitting because Matthew describes our greatest hope and our greatest need in all of the world. Sometimes it is easy to forget. I know it sounds insane. It's easy to forget as Christians that our main goal is to focus on and to walk like Jesus. And so a steady diet of the Gospels that gives to us a picture of who Jesus was and how he walked and what he said and who he ministered to is fitting for people like us. And so as we start, I'm going to read the first 17 verses of Matthew chapter 1. And, this is a spoiler for you, it is full of names. I just gave you, I hope, at least a little bit of like, well, that's anticipation. I'm anticipating that. Matthew is pretty good. I hope that you're there. And then we're going to turn and you're going to say to yourself, all right, let's dive in. Where's the fish teaching that he was talking about? And instead, I'm going to have 17 verses of a genealogy. And my hope is just to read this and then take a few moments to ponder together, to think together about why this is significant and what Matthew has in mind for us through the Spirit of God to teach us. So this is the first verse of Matthew chapter 1. Again, I'm going to read down through verse 17. And then we'll pause and consider it together. The Gospel according to Matthew. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king." 
And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah. Gosh, I felt like I was getting it. Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the, Christ, to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's take a moment and pray. God, we ask that here in 2022, that a list of names, a genealogy, would be alive to us in a way that your spirit can make possible. Help us to see the importance of this list. I pray that we would understand the mind and the heart of your spirit who stirs these words to be written. Give us the level of importance that Matthew might have placed on these words. And God, I ask that you would do this in the midst of a really busy season, lots going on, so many reasons, good reasons for us to be distracted, perhaps discouraged or full of doubt here this morning. And so I'm asking that you would work a miracle, that the sweet gift of your spirit illuminating the Bible to us, one more Sunday, one more year, one more gathering in your presence, that this day that you would give life and give insight and give us direction. So I need your help for that. God, I pray that I could be an encouragement to your people. We ask for your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to give you a little bit of context concerning the book of Matthew. In other words, why Matthew is the first book of the New Testament? And how does Matthew compare to the other Gospels? Or maybe how does Matthew contrast compared to the other Gospels. So a little bit of context concerning this, the author and what this book is going to be. It's a helpful thing to set it up. And then I want to consider the content. I want to actually look at what is this list of names? What does this genealogy tell us concerning the birth of Jesus Christ? That's where it's going in verse 18. Why does Matthew insist on listing this out? We're going to talk about the content of Matthew 1, 1 to 17. And then I want to just give a couple of considerations so there'll be some context concerning Matthew, the content of 1 through 17, and then a few considerations as we start the study of this book, especially this time of year. The first thing to note is that Matthew is the first in gospel order, and of all things that are inconsistent, and all things that are up in the air, and all the things that scholars can't figure out about the way the Bible's put together, 
there is one thing that seems and has remained certain that from the very beginning, in listings of this fourfold gospel given to us, this fourfold description of the person of Jesus and his mission, that Matthew always ends up first. It leads the way. Now, there are some reasons for this that we simply cannot know. I think it would be pure and complete, utter speculation to try to nail it down perfectly. But there are a few possibilities that seem likely about why does Matthew come first? There are reasons perhaps like this. Matthew was known and, of course, would have been a witness to the life of Jesus. There is good reason to believe this same Matthew who was called Levi, perhaps because of his ancestry in a Levite tribe, would have been the kind of person who was literate and careful and logical enough to record an accounting like this. And so Matthew, being well-known, a disciple of Jesus, capable of recording such things, perhaps he was by reputation considered to be not only a reputable, but a good foray into a defense of and a witness to the life of Jesus. Matthew, perhaps, is also first in this accounting because of its close connection to the Old Testament. It has a close connection to the Old Testament in a few different ways. One, a good thing to remember, is that Matthew is the first word for us after 400 years of silence from the Old Testament. This would be hard to picture for a publisher, but in some ways, I heard it said one time that publishers ought to do a better job of separating Old and New Testament. Or remember, if you're, uh, if you're stuck in the the sort of spirit of our age that old is always bad. Maybe the, the retro testament, the first testament, the, the foundational testament in the second, there's not really a good, a good understanding of what takes you know, place between here. Maybe if you have a study Bible, it'll tell you some stuff. But I remember as a kid, I had a Bible that just finished at the end of the Old Testament, and then the next page, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And one thing I believe that Matthew does well in its focus on Jesus as a coming king and its focus in the genealogy of what took place in Babylon. Did you note that in the, in the list? They're like, by the way, remember when we were deported and we spent all this time as a people who were not influential in Babylon? Matthew focuses on this and brings us an understanding of Jesus as a king who rescues out of exile. As a king who puts right what has been upended. In that way, Matthew is a good fit for the first word following 400 years of silence. It is also perhaps the reason that it is first because Matthew is written in many ways to a largely skeptical Jewish audience. The early church, as we saw in Rome and some of the consequences going back and forth, the difficulty... The early church, not only in Rome, but in Galatia, would have had a keen understanding and an awareness of this new wondrous thing that was happening. We prayed for the youngs earlier that there would be reconciliation between previously at war groups. Well, Jewish people and Gentiles, for them to worship together, to be included together, would have been unthinkable. And it was not lost on the early church that Jesus himself came as a Messiah in the Jewish tradition, that he was a fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament, but that he had come to usher in a welcome to those who were outside. And it is that flavor of this book specifically 
The flavor where there is a constant in the background, the sort of view of the audience of Matthew is slightly different compared to the others because it is always asking and answering questions like this. How is Jesus a uniquely Jewish Savior and yet the hope of the whole world? And that is one of the reasons why it begins with a genealogy. Because genealogies would have been hugely important to anyone coming and saying, how could Jesus possibly be the Messiah? Does he have the right pedigree? And so Matthew, the first word after 400 years of exile, Matthew, a trusted and well-known confidant of Jesus, Matthew, who focuses on the Jewish context of what is taking place, and Matthew, who acknowledges and understands the plight of the people of Israel, comes first. Now, I have to admit to you, there are some parts of Scripture that fall apart more easily and neatly, and you can't wait to teach them. Here's an example. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the kind of thing where if you slapped me awake in the morning, right, and just sort of like, it's 5.30, slap me awake, and you give me about 90 seconds, and you say, why don't you teach on this verse, and you show me Romans 3.23, I would be a little groggy, and I'd say, I feel bad for who's going to listen, but I'm ready to go. I got this. Let's, let's do this. We're, it's on. But if you slap me at 5.30 in the morning, and you said, here's a 17-verse genealogy, get out there, tiger, it'd be a little bit harder, right? So, let's dive in together and see what we can discern or see what we can squeeze out of what God has given us in this genealogy. I'm going to give you a few reasons why I think we should pay careful attention and not do the thing that's very, very possible for us. Some of us have learned, some of us are are literate. (laughs) Some of us are literate. I was going to say, some of us can read, and it sounded funny to me. All of us can read, but some of us have a next level of reading, and that is that we are adept at skimming, right? You've been in degree programs, and you know what it is to get through. You know how, you know how to go. And so even in the midst of books that you love, this is your favorite fiction book of all time, you're not really going to leave, you're not going to read that whole description of the white whale. You know what I mean? Like, you just don't. You're not too concerned about oil in this, you know, trade of the 18th century. So you skim. And if we're honest, this is one of those moments where we could carefully skim. But I want to, on a day like this, slow down and try to pull a few things out. The first is to say that though we do not introduce one another with our pedigree very often, that pedigree still is important in our world and whose Father's, mother's, uncle's, friend, we may have been connected to, still matters greatly. We understand the implications of being connected physically in an earthy sense to people of import. So we value, and I would say that our culture largely has driven toward what we consider to be meritocracy, a throwing down of who you're from or where you're with. We look down on things like nepotism. So we must balance this understanding that it still matters in some ways. You're intrigued if I told you right now. If I said, did you know that my great-great-grandfather served on the Supreme Court? And then 
I gave you the list and it went all the way through the whole thing. Two things would happen. One, you would be kind of impressed for a moment, like, interesting, that's intriguing to me. Wow, I think you're more judicious than I thought you were 10 minutes ago. And then second, you would say, wow, you're a bigger liar than I thought you were. Because, of course, I wasn't, right? I have no ancestry in the Supreme Court whatsoever. But we could all admit, I think sometimes we take a, a sort of modern view of the Bible like this, and we say, oh, we're above that. We don't care where someone's from. All we care is about the character that they have within the present. And of course, it's not entirely true. Our world is still based on pedigree in many ways. I am not an ancestry buff. My dad is, and he's helped me to understand some of the value of these kind of things. In fact, ancestry to me, I, I will admit to you that I felt a little bit sort of standoffish with. I like to believe that or sort of everyone is a self-made person and it doesn't matter where you came from. My foray into pedigree was trying to purchase a dog. We tried to get a dog, and I know as soon as I said purchase a dog, all the shelter people were just, I know. So anyway, there I was looking for a dog. And I had no idea that dogs come with, if you're going to talk to people about getting a dog, that the pedigree matters a ton with dogs. And so by the time we got our dog, we were handed a packet with a listing of 14 generations of dog. As if I cared <laughs> at all. <laughs> there's, a, there's an amazing Simpsons episode where Bart wins an elephant. And when Homer goes to fill, sell the elephant, he has a key because they had chained the elephant by the leg up in their yard. And he says, here's your elephant, and here's his key. And the guy buying the elephant says, elephants don't come with keys. So Homer says, I'll just be keeping that then. And he keeps it. And that's how I felt when they gave me an envelope of a pedigree of a dog. I wanted to say to them, it's a dog. Dogs don't come with pedigrees. But I was the wrong one in that situation. So I am skeptical, and I'm with you, but I want you to, not, to be less skeptical and to admit that in many ways this matters. It mattered way more to them than to us, but it still matters. And here is why specifically it matters. Who your ancestors were in a nation that was designed to be through physical birth. Birthright meant a ton. The fact that you were tied to the nation of Israel would have meant nearly everything, especially for your influence or your ability to be a priestly-like figure. If you were to be a teaching-like figure, a rabbi, then it mattered where you were from. And then, of course, if you're going to make the claim that Matthew makes, and that is, is that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ, the Messiah, the King, it matters where you come from. I thought about using as an introduction this whole genealogy of King thing because the Queen just died, and I got bored within like five minutes, so I just didn't, I just didn't use it. But the point is, it matters, right? Just you can't just claim to be king, it matters. And Matthew knows that it matters to those who are paying attention, and so he begins. He has of keen interest to show them a few different things, that Jesus is tied all the way back to Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, and that Jesus is tied back to David, who was the king in the rightful throne of Israel. And it is going to be his fulfillment of those two offices, the father or the, the leader of the people of God, and the king, the rightful ruler over the people of God, that Jesus is going to fall in line with. This list is an amazing list. Matthew has a particular twist. He goes through the father, 
He goes down to Joseph, who is the husband of Mary, in verse 16. There are other gospel accounts that seem to more carefully follow Mary's accounting or her, her ancestry. It has been made much of through the years that, in fact, Jesus has genealogy that goes back to the right places from both sides of his family. The other thing that Matthew does uniquely here in this genealogy, he ties him not only to Abraham and to David, who is the king, through his father, Joseph, but he also ties it to a list of rulers. Matthew is very keen to show that Jesus comes in a long line of those who had the rightful claim to the throne. This was one of the things that is in the list. A couple of other nuances or things to note as we consider the content of Matthew 1, 1 to 17. There are three groups of 14 names. He summarizes this in verse 17. All the generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations. David to Babylon, 14. From Babylon to Christ, 14. I'm not massively into this, and I don't know a ton about it, but it has been pointed out that the names and words, in fact, in Hebrew, often had numerical equivalents. So you could, based on the letters of the alphabet in Hebrew, there would have been meaning based on a word through numbers. It turns out that the name David, King David, where there is a king promised on the throne forever, that David's name numerically in Hebrew is 14. And so to a Jewish audience who is paying attention to these kind of things, you look through three groups of 14 names, and 14 generations would have tied in very neatly with David. It would have lent credence to the idea that God is doing something special and unique in history right now. These groups tied to David were also arranged in something that is entirely lost to us because we're reading it in English here a couple thousand years beyond. But these names were also, it seems, taken great care of by Matthew to be listed in a kind of an acrostic. So their names are written out in a way that would have been easy to remember for anyone who was trying to pay attention it's as if you would have studied the book of Matthew, and then in a discussion with your friends, if someone said, Jesus can't be king, he doesn't come from the right line, you would have remembered back to your ABCs or to a rhyming song or something to remember the list of names, to give confidence of where Jesus has come from. A further thing to note in this list, perhaps surprisingly, to those who would have been paying attention, there are four women listed in this story concerning Jesus' birth. And Matthew treats them as Jesus would continue to treat women in his life and ministry with great respect and inclusion and love. We know that this is an act of love and inclusion and grace because the women who are included in this list are not those who would have been of great repute. The four women listed in here, Tamar, who if you know well the stories of the Old Testament, and I'm just going to say it again as we study the New Testament, if you want to know your New Testament well, make sure you're spending time in the Old Testament, especially if you have a few moments together and you're reading through and you find that the Bible brackets off something or something that looks like a quotation, go back and find it. You'll, you'll see yourself lost in stories. Tamar is an adulteress. Tamar is in the line of Jesus, not according to perfect circumstances. There was a ton of sin surrounding her life. 
She was done wrong by. She was a person without power and treated powerlessly. And yet, in a full-throated kind of way, Matthew outlines and says, yes, this is the line of Jesus, straight through these children born from Tamar. Beyond Tamar, we have Rahab, who is described in Scripture as faithful, helpful, and very strategic in the life of Israel and saving spies, but also worked in a very unholy kind of lifestyle. She would have been a woman of the night. We find further, so we have two, Tamar and Rahab. We find further Uriah's wife, again, a woman who was done wrong by, who was in a powerless spot and taken advantage of and placed in the unthinkable situation of being brought into the palace and end up being the mother of the king's children, but also grieving the loss of her husband. And Matthew says, when you consider where Jesus has come from, include Uriah's wife. Furthermore, we have Ruth included in the list. Ruth is in a list of, math, of this genealogy from Matthew, and Ruth would not have been a sort of pure insider kind of person. Ruth was, in fact, a Moabite, and yet she is a part of the story, and she is a mother to those who are key in bringing about the line and the person of Jesus to be king. And what this genealogy tells us concerning these things, not only is there an interest in Abraham and in David, and in all of those who would have ruled in an earthly way that Jesus would have rightly come from, but also to show that the kingdom of God and the thing that God is doing and bringing about his Messiah is demonstrating grace and inclusion of men and women, and I would say even foreshadowing the idea that there would be an inclusion of all nations, that it would include the powerless and the powerful, and this listing is not by accident. I would say, in reference to the content of this, in addition to the idea of it demonstrating grace and inclusion of all different kinds of ways, can I also just say this? If you are preparing the birth narrative of Jesus, one of the things that you might want to demonstrate from the outset, from people who could just out of hand throw it away, there's a what? A virgin birth? and then they just move on, one thing you might want to establish is that God, when he brings about his purposes, often does so in surprising ways. And who could have written this story? Who could have made up all the twists and turns, the ups and downs, the seemingly sideways paths to preserve and to bring about the Son of God into the world to save all who would trust in him? So what we learn through this genealogy is not only that genealogies and pedigrees mattered, and so the fact that Jesus came from the right line showed that he was prophetically able to step into the mantle that God was giving him, and not only does this genealogy show that he was connected to Abraham and David and the rightful kings, but it shows that God is a surprising and sovereign ruler who brings about his purposes sometimes in surprising ways. It shows that God is full of grace, that even in the midst of sinful circumstances, 
that God will have his way accomplished and he will redeem things that have been undone and bring them about for his purposes. God is able to bring about a king and to save all of those who would trust him, not because they had done things perfectly up to this point. Matthew is not saying this. He's not saying, everybody, you should, re- you should receive and accept Jesus because he is what happens when 42 generations of humans finally do it perfectly. God will save us if for 42 generations in a row, 14 and 14 and 14, if, if for that many times in a row, God will save us and send a savior, if we just get it right that many times, he'll finally pay attention. That is not the story of this genealogy. The genealogy says, in fact, something like this. Remember all the times that we were stumbling and bumbling and falling and completely undone by our own desires and temptations? Remember when we were earthly in every single sense? Remember when there was murder involved? Remember when there was rejection and there was powerless? Remember when we had to put families back together because someone was left from death and ravaged by illness? Do you remember that ruler who was terrible? Remember how he inherited the throne and then he just did all the wrong things? Remember when the economy tanked? Remember when the enemies came in and we didn't have the army ready? It turns out that God can and was working through all of that. And this Savior who now comes into the world is not because we finally impressed him after 42 generations, but because God is bringing to fruition the promise of the thing that we've needed all along, and that is grace. So this genealogy, if you went back and you studied the the stories of each of these people, you would be amazed. It's more Hatfield-McCoy than it is some kind of pristine Hallmark movie list. So the content of the genealogy is not a throwaway. The encouragement is not to skim it. When it talks about a, a Babylonian exile, it matters to those who are reading It means that they were without hope and they needed the hope of a savior. It matters that Abraham is a father and David is a king and it matters that God can work through those who are powerless and those who have sinned and those who don't get it right. It matters every single name and every single generation because in Christ all of this history will be wrapped up and brought to light. So a couple of considerations as we've started the book of Matthew. Perhaps a consideration even for those of us who are considering Christmas and thinking about these next number of weeks. One of my increasingly favorite students of the New Testament and scholars of the Bible is Dr. Pennington. Jonathan Pennington has written very, very helpfully on the Sermon on the Mount and He's a gospel scholar overall. He has a book called How to Read the Gospels Wisely. And he opens with an acknowledgement of the possibility for us to commit the same kind of error that Jesus seemed to see in many of his followers and to not do so. So here's a consideration. A consideration is, is that when we hear the story of the coming of the Son of God, when we understand that a king has come, When we see that God is a God of grace and that he includes in his message of hope all the nations, when we see amazing parables and try to live according to them, 
that one temptation for us is to be proud of all that we have learned and completely void of implementing it or applying it in our lives. And this, it seems, is one of Jesus' chief complaints in Matthew. So here we are. We're starting another book. I'm so excited. We're just going to nerd out and just get everything we can out of this. And you're going to be a gospel scholar by the end of it. But let's remember and consider this. If we do not apply the person, the teaching, the ethic of Jesus, if we don't walk in his kingdom, then we've missed it. And so let's read Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 24. And let's let this be a consideration as we start a new book in this time of year. Matthew teaches and he says things like this. Matthew records the teaching of Jesus who says things like this. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does, and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Commenting on this and an encouragement to those who would study the Gospels, Pennington says this, the wise are distinguished from the foolish and that they not only hear Jesus' teaching, but they also act upon them. That is, they order their lives according to his ways and his wisdom. My great desire as we start this book, as we consider this season, is not to create those who are smarter about Christmas, not to give wonderful insights that stay here in this room concerning the birth of the Son of God. My goal in starting the book of Matthew is not simply for us to fill our brains and to leave it here, though I hope your brain is so chock full of stuff every time you leave, but that God would give us the gift of moving by his Spirit to apply what we see. So that it would not be said of us that we loved broad phylacteries. I know you've never accused each other of that. That's what Jesus said. That's what Jesus said concerning the Pharisees. He's warning someone about them, and he's like, look, if you hang out with them, watch out. They love broad phylacteries. And here's what that meant. A phylactery was a way to show off all that you'd learned in the Bible. It was like a sticker system except bigger than that. It showed all that you'd memorized, the way that you were smart, your degrees. But Jesus' concern was this. They loved wearing those things to show off their knowledge, but their lives hadn't changed. They, they knew all this stuff, but they did not have the Spirit of God motivating their lives. So here's my desire. Let's not learn about a king and not obey. Let's not wonder at the grace of God and not receive it. Let's not consider miracles like a virgin birth and not worship. Let's not tell one another that the hope of the world is here, but then live hopeless. These things have been written down for our instruction, and all who are wise would listen and apply. So I'm excited. I cannot wait to dive into the greatest hits of Matthew. And more than that, I'm anticipating what God might change in us, might do in us as we study.